Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we speak with Rosa Wong. Rosa is author of the book Strong Connections, Stories of Resilience from the Far Reaches of the Mobile Phone Revolution. Based on her experience as Global Director for Digital Financial Services at Opportunity International, Rosa writes about the opportunities of mobile phone technology for reducing poverty. Opportunity International is a network of microfinance organizations, and they've provided access to digital bank accounts to millions of people around the world. Rosa has been at the forefront of these efforts. And in this episode, we speak about the benefits that digital inclusion can bring, but also opposition to and risks of greater use of mobile technology in the fight against poverty. Rosa, thank you very much for joining the podcast. You've written such an interesting book with fascinating insight into how mobile technology has opened new worlds for many populations around the globe, including very remote populations. You talk about farmers in Tanzania, rural women in India, and also female market traders in Ghana. So to start our conversation, could you give us a quick rundown, if quick is possible, on the most important uses of mobile technology that you've seen, especially in lower middle income countries where your work has focused? How has or can mobile technology transform people's lives? Yeah, thank you. So that's a really good question, because I think that the impact that I saw of mobile technologies, particularly in areas you know, where most people listening to this would not be living, say in rural India or in places like in Ghana or Tanzania, is much more expansive in many ways than it is, say, in the US or UK. So, for example, because transport is quite poor uh, in many areas that many people would substitute, uh, say, a very costly bus ride or motorbike ride into town uh, by calling someone or by calling ahead and getting information you know, we would find market traders really wanting to be able to plan their inventory, to be able to get prices. And so all of that really has shifted to the use of the mobile phone. And so it substitutes for uh, communications, for information instead of transport, uh, but all kinds of different ways. And I think as well, because their other services are not so good, uh, that there are many creative ways that we're finding people using Uh, mobile technologies where maybe the analog version in uh, richer countries might might suffice. Now you work with Opportunity International and have been working on digital services. What kind of projects or programs does Opportunity International support and how does the mobile technology come in? So Opportunity International is an organization focused on microfinance. It was created as one of the original microfinance groups, uh, which offers small-scale loans, particularly to women. It's grown in terms of its mission to really try and battle intergenerational poverty by focusing on things uh, specialized, such as education loans, and also to help uh, rural populations, uh, such as smallholder farmers, through an innovative agriculture program. So when I had first joined Opportunity, now going back about a decade, the mobile phone itself was beginning to be accepted into some of these areas, although certainly not near to the degree that you would see today. 
And the effort was to try and shift as many of the clients uh, or the beneficiaries of receiving the services so that they could use their own phone and be empowered to access services when they want, also, you know, where they want, so sitting in their own home, if they wanted to, say, check their balance or things, um, and also to bring in information services and really try to shift away from a lot of the costly manual services. And what this did is it would allow for the expansion into rural areas where things like bricks and mortar branches really are not cost feasible. And it also allows for greater outreach and for outreach to happen at a much more rapid pace. So in your book, you describe how farmers in Tanzania and traders in, in Ghana use their mobile phones. Is it always linked to microfinance accounts or is it also sometimes about, for example, accessing information or accessing data about prices or, or where they can get certain goods? And if so, how does that relate to the microfinance or other solutions that Opportunity International provides? Well, because we were already sort of offering microfinance loans, the work within Opportunity really started about saying, how do you link a specific account or how do you link the loan into a person's phone or into a form of mobile technologies? It really started to expand, though, once we um, started introducing it and just going into the field. And, and that's a lot of what I try to outline in my book, is that as you're observing the very creative ways the people on the ground are using it, so as you mentioned, to access information, uh, we find the farmers feel greatly empowered by being able to access things like price information. So if a wholesaler comes and tries to buy tomatoes in one village, you know, and they might offer them what unbeknownst to them is, is a poor price, but they would say, oh, well, you know, everyone has tomatoes at the same time. They're ripe at the same time. You need to sell it now. Um, but if he's able to call, the farmer is able to call, say, a village three or four villages over and say, well, what price are you receiving? And then to find out that, oh, they have actually had rain issues. And so, in fact, price of tomatoes can be quite high. That gives the farmer a lot more leverage and ability uh, to do things. And we also find, again, staying with the case of the farmers, they can receive information such as, you know, has there been a blight? Uh, maybe some advice in terms of ag best agricultural practices that they can do. Uh, and they can also connect to collaborators or, or places that they can go for help on things like fertilizer or best practices. But I think one of the things that was sort of underestimated and tends to be underestimated by people when they first try to introduce digital technologies and mobile technologies are the challenges in trying to get a population maybe that hasn't had access and how is it that, that what are the barriers that they face and so there's the barrier of just fundamental access you know do they have a device and we found disproportionately women might not have their own device while that is improving the gender gap of device ownership is still one of the uh, major barriers in terms of of the digital divide um, we also find that like an opportunity I would say about two-thirds of the clients that we serve have some form of literacy challenge. So either they didn't have the chance to go to formal schooling, or maybe they're much more comfortable in only one dialect uh, rather than the majority dialect of things, certainly overwhelmingly would not uh, be able to speak or read English. And so that creates the challenge. And then we also found, interestingly, was that by not having had access to a device, and sort of practiced with it, we found a lack of confidence. 
and again, disproportionately among the women clients, I would ask them, do you have a phone? And, and they might not have a phone, but do you have a phone in your household? And they would say, yes, the husband has a phone. And when I would press further and kind of ask, you know, are you allowed to use it? Uh, several times the response came back that it, it, it's too hard. Uh, there were challenges in terms of just navigating very simple menus or, or even a 10-digit number. And so a lot of the practice of rolling out digital services is accompanied by what we call a full client education practice. And we've uh, tried many different things and have come upon some quite innovative ways to introduce that. I think one of the most successful is peer learning. So if a person within a group is more adept and, and much more digitally literate, uh, having them sort of help and conduct the demos has been very good. And then ultimately, the program that's described in the book in Bihar in India is about what we call a network of agents, or in other words, human persons who assist with the transaction. And we found that in many cases, although you can offer the education, although the access has improved, it is still quite challenging, particularly again for the women. And so having a human being there to sort of assist them has been really helpful. And so that's alongside with the agent program. Thank you for these reflections on some of the challenges. I think particularly the chapter that focuses on the program in Bhopal and in India really speaks to that. And you mentioned the sadness you felt when realizing that so many women you speak to do not have access to the phone that their husband holds and are excluded from using this kind of technology. So you just mentioned using human beings, human agents as one way of resolving that. But I imagine particularly that challenge of giving women access to the mobile technology if phones aren't available, but also if phones are owned by their husbands or partners and they don't have access is a very intractable issue to resolve. Are there any other ways that you found really helpful in overcoming that obstacle? Or are there also settings where you had to face the reality that it wasn't going to work and something else needed to be implemented entirely? Yeah, so we faced a myriad of different challenges and oftentimes a part of a solution, I would say, that we found in one area is sometimes suitable to bring to another. So I think on the positive side, that general connectivity has improved dramatically over the last decade. And so you've seen a lot of investment uh, into infrastructure as you have more users uh, within a particular area and as more groups are coming in, other NGOs and so forth to offer things like nutrition services, farm-based services, and they focus it on the digital technologies. And so you'll see the big telecom operators recognizing the demand and then improving connectivity, building new masts and, and so forth. So there's been an improvement there. We've tried to always have uh, at Opportunity International a focus on the family. So if there's an education program, the entire family might be invited. And that would include both, say, the husband and the wife. So there can be an understanding of how it is beneficial for the woman to have both access and ability to use something. And that can be recognized by everyone. And we also invite the children because the situation we see in a lot of places, for example, in places like Ghana and Tanzania, the children have had a chance to go through more years of schooling. And so we find that many of the children, especially when they have a phone in their hands, they're very, very adept. They are, as we call them, the digital natives. 
And so they can play a role in the household in terms of helping to read some of the text messages and also in terms of navigating some of the menus. So sort of a family-based or household-based kind of training, we found good success with that. But ultimately, I think we have to recognize that the solution needs to fit the situation uh, that exists. So I mentioned in Bihar, where we're rolling out the agents, where these are human assistants. In that case, it was with these biometric accounts. So here, a woman who does not have her own phone and is not literate is able to use something like a thumbprint to access the account. We found biometrics to be a very, very good way to offer security uh, rather than memorizing a four-digit PIN uh, that, again, we, we do observe some struggles with. And then because legally the account is in her name, the authentication makes it much more secure for it to be biometric. So it's a combination of sort of having the agent. And then more recently, we have a program there to recruit more women as agents. uh, Because again, because of the social construct, there may be challenges for women to visit a male agent. They might have to wait until someone could escort them. So those challenges are overcome with women as agents. And then incorporating things like the biometric readers. Again, it's, it's often people will talk about, oh, we're looking for a solution. And I say, no, you're looking for really what's more of an ecosystem of complex kind of knitted together solutions. And it takes a bit of time to kind of chip away at different elements of it. Uh, but you'll often find that if you're able to string enough of these good solutions together, uh, that that can have a really, really powerful impact. Really interesting. And On that point of stringing solutions together, in the book, you reflect on how the program you're leading is called digital financial services, but rather you would call it digital inclusion. And I was wondering when reading that in in setting up these systems or solutions that are highly reliant on digital or mobile technology, and in a way moving towards a cashless economy, there are many people included and you have many efforts to include people that are usually excluded. But there's always the the last mile issue or those who have always been at the margins of society and will probably also find it hard to be included in these efforts. How do you deal with those really persistent issues of exclusion and reach out to those beneficiaries who might find it especially difficult to take up new technology and to be part of this? So this has become, I think, the the area that I'm most keenly interested in is sort of that very last uh, kind of bit of digital exclusion and how to sort of overcome that. What we find is often that people have compound barriers, but we also find that solutions that might work in one arena can carry over. So one example that we tried because, as I mentioned, many of the clients or the beneficiaries, as, as you call them, have literacy issues. We tried a program called Interactive Voice Response. And so these are voice messages that are recorded in local language. We did the intervention first in Ghana uh, with our partner there called Opportunity International Savings and Loans. And basically, the people would be sent a text message, and then they could respond, say, if they wanted to hear the second message, they could respond by pressing one, or it might inform them about something like a community meeting, Uh, so it can be used as sort of one-way messaging or two-way messaging. We found that the voice messages had a lot of traction, so it overcame the issues of literacy, but it also overcame the issues of, of things like majority dialect. 
Um, so the original thing that we did was in three dialects in Ghana. Uh, we then increased it at a later program into five dialects and found that had even greater reach. So there were some minority dialects that people would prefer to use. But things like the voice response can also be made more suitable for people, let's say, who have certain disabilities, uh, such as problems with sight. So different methods of trying to overcome it, using things increasingly like voice to overcome things like literacy. And then we also find, as I mentioned, things like the biometrics, really a, a great service. And the biometric usage has been incorporated in the refugee areas uh, where Opportunity is working, because that's a population where often a person is undocumented, um, how to verify their identity and how to attach something like their account. That is quite empowering, but how to attach it to the correct person if you're not talking about forms of, of physical identification. So all of those sort of do work together. And one of the exciting things that I think is that as you're having an increased number of people becoming more attuned to the challenges, say, faced by refugee communities or the challenges faced by smallholder farmers, you're seeing an increased use of or attention that people pay in terms of what is the context of the person trying to use this? And how is it that we might come up with, again, a group of solutions that can better address in that context? And what has the reception of the technology been in the communities that you work with? In your book, you speak about a lot of enthusiasm. And I think a lot of the people you meet, clients you meet, are very excited about using the phones or using the services that are available through phones or other means. Has there been any resistance anywhere? Is there always a positive response? This has been very interesting because this was a learning experience for us. So I would say the end users or the beneficiaries, um, those who, who took it up themselves early on were very, very enthusiastic. And then we started to face people who were more either, again, they didn't have facility or they lacked confidence in terms of, of using digital services. And so we're rolling out education programs or outreach programs specifically to try and address some of their concerns. But what we were not anticipating was some degree of resistance. And this largely came from some frontline field staff. Uh, I don't want to say all, but some of the frontline field staff were concerned that this, because we talk about efficiencies, and I think this is something that, especially like at head office, you'll talk about, well, these digital technologies are great. They're really efficient. It can bring costs down. And what a lot of the frontline field officers heard was efficiency. Oh, no, my job might be a threat or this might result in layoffs. And so in some ways, it is very, very similar to the concerns that we see in the developed world where automation brings anxiety about what happens if my job is suddenly done by a phone or a computer or an algorithm. And then, you know, what do I do? And so we've had to redo our outreach to include and incorporate the anxieties about the frontline field staff and to have a very clear message all the way up to the senior ranks saying, you know, there will always be frontline field workers, so they shouldn't be overly concerned about that, but that a frontline field staff of the future needs to also be digitally literate. And so having training, having training that benefits the field officers because it offers them a, a very viable skill set. And so we've seen an improved uh, sort of response and acceptance to that. But this is something that I, I do 
raise, and I do caution people that if they are expecting it to primarily be the end users who might have some resistance, in this case, uh, we were surprised because it was sort of the intermediaries. And in some cases, there were people that we had tasked with offering training or offering guidance uh, to the end users. And so it's really important to bring all constituents who are involved in some way so that they can understand the broad benefits and also to listen to what are the anxieties that they have, because I think those are really pertinent to both the digital expansion and to the ability to provide ongoing impact. And thinking about some of the anxieties that exist around automation or digitization, not just in low-income countries or low-income communities, but I think around the world, I guess one of the other criticisms is that, or relates to the power in a way handed to the companies, the organizations, and and sometimes also governments behind these efforts. And we have one episode from last year where we talk about some of the risks associated with implementing the digital technology, but also making the provision of information such as biometrics a requirement to have access to certain services and benefits. And so when services become digitized, clients provide a lot of information to to the service providers. And you were speaking about the biometrics in, I believe, in Bihar in India. And of course, it's used in many ways for good intentions to optimize user experiences and to make things more efficient. But it can also be used for less positive intentions and, for example, for controlling or monitoring populations, etc., How do you deal with these risks and particularly in any programs where you try to link up with government provision or where you include big financial services? So this, I think, is the area where I would probably place some of my biggest concerns or a body of biggest concerns. And that's in the whole area of what we call consumer protection, including consumer data protection or the protection of someone's data. Certainly, I think what you observe, and I I think there have been some studies, that a person of very low income oftentimes fully understands, at least the intellectual exercise, they understand the risk of giving their data or giving information to another party, and yet their economic circumstance is such that they would do so anyway. So in other words, if they needed to feed their child, you know, uh, are, are you willing to hold on to this piece of information or are you willing to give someone else your, your PIN number, those kinds of things. So I think it goes beyond just a personal education process. I think it, this does involve getting all of the parties together and recognizing what are the broader systemic risks that might be there. And especially as we have broader portions of the population, but especially those that might be vulnerable, are there certain safeguards and are there certain consumer protections uh, that need to be considered? Obviously, when we introduce things like digital services, um, Opportunity will have an education process uh, beyond that. Also, we do take part in terms of consultations and in terms of broader industry uh, sorts of initiatives, kind of bringing not just ourselves, but let's say all of the other microfinance organizations, other NGOs, uh, to have a dialogue with people such as the regulators, uh, with governments, um, to say what are practices that we've observed or what are dangers and risks that we've observed in, in some area, and what are suggestions not to try to replicate that or to have the best interests overall. Some of the efforts that I think 
are really interesting come with other organizations that are trying to look at things like consumer protection. The models that we have, for example, in developed countries, I think can serve a way to think about uh, what are the challenges, what are the risks. Sometimes I think they might go a little bit overboard because one of the dangers is that it prevents all kinds of activities from, from sort of moving forward. So the way I like to describe it to people is that digital technologies provides the ability for change to happen very, very rapidly and at a much larger scale, basically exponentially, which is very different than how we've seen change implemented before. And that can be done in the context of good or that can be done in the context of, of evil. And so I think it's important that everyone is, is sort of astute to the sort of two-sided nature of the digital technologies. But I would still say on balance, the empowerment that I've seen and the ability for an individual to obtain greater information and greater knowledge and education themselves really is one of the things that, uh, that underpins the overall sort of trajectory. So I'm not, you know, hope this doesn't result in, in kind of regulatory overreach uh, with things, because I think some of the expansion that we saw, especially the early days of mobile money in East Africa, I believe that a big portion of that, or a, a, one of the reasons that it expanded rapidly is the relative light regulation, so that innovative ways that were happening on the ground could just be tried and, and fall over, and those that worked well were able to gain a lot of traction. But the, that remains uh, some of my biggest concerns, the area particularly on the consumer protection. Very clear. We're moving towards the end of this conversation. And as we do, I'd also like to direct us towards some of the very interesting stories that you've told in, in your book. And you paint a really vivid picture of how digital technology transforms people's lives from India to Ghana to Kenya and Tanzania. So I'm going to ask you a hard question, and that's whether you can share a particular story or experience that really stood out for you that highlights what you see as a transformation that digital technology can bring? One of the scenes in the book that really stands out is the scene that takes place in Bhopal. This had sort of an emotional resonance that was somewhat perhaps more marked than, than I've experienced in a lot of other things. And, and so basically in, in the scene, I'm in Bhopal, I'm there visiting a microfinance group together with my colleague Prasida, uh, who is the female founder of a microfinance organization, um, were welcomed. So she escorts the men out of the room, the other male staff, and so it's all women, and we're welcome to sit on the floor with them and enter into what is a very intimate and very fact-finding conversation. I asked the women, you know, how do you save your money? Because none of the women had formal accounts beyond a microfinance loan. And interestingly, that's when it sort of cascaded in terms of they would hide it in canisters, they might bury it in the garden, hide it in boxes of old clothes, things like that. And it, it just became almost joyful as people would share different ways and they'd kind of giggle about, oh, yes, and then I would forget where I buried it in the garden and, and stuff. And so I remember that because I think going in, uh, both Prasida and I had anticipated that perhaps the women had minimal savings, uh, except for maybe the gold that they wore. And in finding this, we heard a much broader response than I think we were ex expecting. And that has resulted in pairing up, the, the organization then paired up with 
different groups to try to improve the level of savings and to get those into formal accounts. But I think one of the reasons it also sort of is imprinted in my memory is that just a couple of days later was when the government of India announced the surprise demonetization. And as a way to sort of punctuate and imprint the impact of big global geopolitical events, I was just reminded, particularly the timing of it, that those women probably lost everything. And so the, the, the squirreled away money that they that brought them such joy, you know, was all taken from them. And if anything, that the whole scene, the whole episode really helped to improve my understanding or perhaps have a more nuanced understanding about the deep impact of gender issues, because that was an area where, where they were quite severe, but also just how disempowered someone might be and how uh, something like the demonetization, which did have impact on millions and millions of individuals, but for many, it was an inconvenience and there might've been some minor losses. And for these women, it would have been everything that they had saved. That just is something that I was, um, that stays with me for a long time. Thank you for sharing that. I can absolutely imagine that that sticks with you. Rosa, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been really interesting. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners, something that I haven't asked about or something that you think the listeners really need to know about? Well, I just wanted to encourage people with the book. My attempt was to try to demystify the world of economic development and what happens when people go on the ground. And in some sense, to demystify what happens in the area of digital technologies. So I think some people might hear some of the topics we're talking about and be concerned that, oh, I don't really have a background in technology, but I try not to use technical lingo or strange acronyms, but to try and make it friendly. And I really did want to talk about the impact on the lives of the women that I had met. And, and that's the, the reason for bringing it to stories. And so I do hope uh, more people get a chance to read this. Well, I can attest to the fact that your book is a very low on technical detail, although you do provide some, but in very approachable and accessible language. But it's completely embedded in very interesting stories of your work and your connections with the communities and the people that you work with. Thank you very much for joining us and we wish you good luck with your work. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you could leave us a review and we hope you'll join us again next time.